Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Okay, let's cut to the chase. Pediatric UTI. It isn't earth-shattering emergency medicine. It isn't thoracotomy. It isn't ECMO in the Paris subway system. Look it up. And it isn't the fine touch of delayed sequence intubation. But I'm here to tell you that it's A, important, B, common, and C, generally done, well, not that well. On the one hand, UTI is one of the most common bacterial infections in children younger than two years of age, and theoretically at least, could maybe lead to sepsis acutely and renal failure in the long run. Again, maybe. On the other hand, it's important not to overdiagnose UTIs because we know that overuse of antibiotics increases costs, side effects, and leads to antibiotic resistance. So how does a humble emergency doctor navigate the waters? The first principles questions very much apply here. Who to screen? How to screen? What to do with the screen results? And the risks associated with not having a standardized approach to diagnosing pediatric UTIs. I'd like to kickstart our discussion by outlining an argument that was published in the Annals of EM about six years ago in a paper entitled, Pediatric Urinary Tract Infection, Does the Evidence Support Aggressively Pursuing the Diagnosis? And the argument goes like this. There's a substantial amount of overlap between a true UTI and asymptomatic bacteria. And this leads to overdiagnosis and overtreatment in otherwise healthy, well kids who present with fever of unknown source. Not only that, but even when the diagnosis is correct and the child does in fact have a UTI, the antibiotics we give don't definitively prevent the supposedly dreaded complications of sepsis and chronic renal failure. The argument goes on that urosepsis is really only a problem in kids who are immunosuppressed or who have congenital anatomical issues with their urogenital tract. And that renal scarring, which is thought to result from pyelonephritis, has never really been shown to be prevented by antibiotics. In the era of choosing wisely, this brings up the big question, are we overdiagnosing and overtreating pediatric UTIs? So Dr. Ostro and Dr. Science, before we answer this important question, please uh, just go ahead and tell the EM Cases listeners a bit about your professional background. Dr. Ostro, you go first. Well, thank you for having me today. So I'm Olivia Ostro. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician and medical safety leader at the Hospital for Sick Children. My academic focus center around quality improvement and patient safety. And with that, I'm actively involved in resource stewardship at our hospital locally in Choosing Wisely, as well as with Choosing Wisely Canada. Amazing. So you like are the heart of Choosing Wisely for pediatric emergency medicine. I love that. All right. And Dr. Science? Yes, thanks so much for having us. So I'm Michelle Science. I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician at SickKids, and I'm the medical advisor for infection prevention and control and also the medical lead for the antimicrobial stewardship program. So I'm very interested in strategies that promote optimal antimicrobial use as well as preventing overuse and misuse of antibiotics. All right, and I understand you're, you're quite a researcher as well, yeah? I try to be. You try to be, okay. All right, so this is great because we have an infectious disease specialist in pediatrics who's also a researcher. We have a QI guru and then me, the average emergency doctor guy who's trying to figure it all out. All right, so 
let's get back to the big question in hand. Dr. Ostro, are we indiscriminately working up kids for UTI, over-testing and over-treating for pediatric UTI? This is a short answer, yes. Let me put this in perspective. We completed a retrospective cohort study at SickKids a couple years ago looking at the false positive rate of urinary tract infection diagnosis. So these are otherwise healthy children that are presenting to the emergency room with a fever or other symptoms where urine testing is done, and they are discharged home with a diagnosis of urinary tract infection and provided an empiric prescription to start antimicrobial therapy. We were astonished to find our results showing that over 46% of these children, in fact, did not have a UTI. Their urine cultures were negative. In other words, almost half of the kids that we are diagnosing with urinary tract infections in our emergency room, in fact, did not have a true UTI. And they were empirically prescribed antibiotics and completing these antibiotic course. So this is definitely a huge problem where we found over-testing, and this has been replicated in the literature at other institutions. Wow. So even at the Hospital for Sick Children, which is like the temple of God for pediatric emergency medicine in Canada, you're getting almost a 50% false positive rate in terms of diagnosing UTI from the ED. That's correct. And if you think about it, most children are not treated at pediatric centers throughout Canada. They're treated at many other centers that see adults and children. So if we can't get it right, it's not surprising that these numbers would be replicated at other centers or could potentially be even worse. This doesn't just apply to emergency medicine. This also applies to all clinics, so walk-in clinics, primary care clinics that see children on a regular basis where urine testing is often done. All right. So I guess we got to concentrate a little bit more then on pretest probability and individual risk factors. We're going to get to all of that to see, again, who we should test, how we should test. But before we dig deep into the question of who to work up for a UTI, we first need to understand, I think, a little bit about the UTI presentation and risk stratification. So Dr. Science, let's start with infants. How do infants in particular typically present with a UTI? So the problem with infants is that the presentation can be very nonspecific. So things like vomiting, poor feeding, lethargy, failure to thrive, jaundice can all be presenting signs of UTI in an infant. And also isolated fever can be the only symptom that they present with. So in a 2008 systematic review, they found that 7% of children 2 to 24 months of age presenting with fever without a source had a UTI. So UTI is one of the most common diagnoses in children presenting with fever without a source. So while UTI is very common in infants who present with fever without a source, their presentation is extraordinarily nonspecific. Therein lies kind of part of the problem. Exactly. What about in older kids? Yeah, so older children tend to be able to localize more to the urinary tract than infants. So they present with more classic symptoms like dysuria, frequency, hematuria, incontinence, and they can also have back pain and abdominal pain. In the older kids, like let's say you've got a two-year-old uh, who presents with fever without a source, I see a lot of kids who are, say, one or two years old, maybe three years old even, who might have some of these symptoms. I see a lot of these kids who don't have any of these symptoms, but just have a fever, get urinalysis. In the older kids, in your experience, kind of what age do they really start having these more specific symptoms? 
I would say most commonly once they are potty trained. So instead of using a specific age, I usually think about when are most kids toilet trained and able to provide a clean catch urine sample if needed. And that's usually somewhere between the age of two and three. So the literature mostly supports that children at three and above tend to have very classic symptoms of UTI that you would often think of in an adult. So if a child presents with a fever and is otherwise well-appearing and doesn't have any of those classic symptoms at age three, a urine tests would not be necessary at that time of care as long as they have appropriate follow-up for their fever. All right, got it. So we have a little bit of an idea of how nonspecific infants present and at what age, really it's when they're toilet trained, when they start to get the more specific signs and symptoms of a UTI. So now that we have a little bit of idea about how kids present, let's dig into the accuracy of some of the signs and symptoms. So Dr. Ostro, what is the diagnostic accuracy of the various UTI signs and symptoms in infants? Yeah, so as you just mentioned, it's really the younger children, so toddlers and infants that we are focusing on where this diagnostic dilemma occurs. So knowing that the prevalence is around 7%, but anywhere, depending on which study you're looking at, around 5 to 10%, it can be really tricky to determine which child needs urinary testing. So I think big take-home points is if you think about girls, females have a much higher risk of urinary tract infections, twice the risk of a relative risk of a urinary tract infections compared with boys. And the other category that I'd like you to keep in mind is uncircumcised boys. So uncircumcised boys aged 2 to 24 months, they also, depending on which study you look at, can have at least a 4 to up to 20 times higher rate of a urinary tract infection compared with circumcised males. So those are the two um, big factors that I think is always important to keep in mind. There was a study in JAMA in 2007. Um, the article was entitled, Does This Child Have a UTI? And they looked at likelihood ratios of different symptoms and signs. And what they found to have significant likelihood ratios of greater than two were a prior history of urinary tract infection, non-black race, an elevated temperature, so a high temperature greater than or equal to 39, and a fever for more than 24 hours. Some classic signs to think about are an uncircumcised and superpubic tenderness, jaundice. Those all had likelihood ratios greater than 2. However, clinically obvious source of infection reduces the likelihood of UTI by one half. So if a child presents with classic new onset rhinorrhea, cough, congestion, it's very unlikely that a child without a prior UTI has a concomitant urinary tract infection as well. But what I really think is important to keep in mind is, is that we're recognizing that one of the symptoms to think of that increases your likelihood of having urinary tract infection is a prior history of a UTI. When knowing that we were falsely diagnosing almost half the children with urinary tract infections, it's really important that we get this right because otherwise we're impacting all future fevers with these children because we're going to consider them having risk factors of a prior UTI when in fact potentially they did not have a prior UTI. And I can tell you in my experience, we see this a lot at sick kids. When parents are coming to us with a history of multiple urinary tract infections and they want to know why their child isn't getting better. But when you actually dig into the case often much deeper, you can never find any evidence that the child ever, in fact, had a true urinary tract infection. Yeah, and I think it's also problematic, Olivia, as you say, because these kids go on to have in other investigations like ultrasounds, VCUGs, and potentially further invasive tests. So it is really important to make sure we're getting it right. You know, from the studies, in terms of the high likelihood ratios, 
things that we need to be on the lookout for. There's a history of prior UTI, but as you were saying, we're not really sure if those were true UTIs. So we're not sure if that helps so much. Other things are a temperature greater than 39 degrees Celsius. They've had a temperature for more than 24 hours. And I think this will be a theme that comes again and again and again, that if they've had a temperature for less than 24 hours, those kids don't necessarily need urinalyses. Superpubic tenderness, jaundice, the uncircumcised male. These are some of the things that have a likelihood ratio of more than two. Again, the history of prior UTI, we have to take with a grain of salt because these might not be actually true UTIs. All right, so that's a little bit about some of the accuracy or likelihood ratios of some of the signs and symptoms in little kids with UTI. Let's talk about risk stratification. So knowing a bit about these signs and symptoms and their likelihood ratios and which ones have diagnostic utility brings us to how to risk stratify these kids so that we don't overdiagnose UTI. So Dr. Ostro, taking into account the usefulness of the various signs and symptoms or lack thereof, how do you decide on your pretest probability of UTI? In other words, which kids do we have to pull the trigger on to actually get a urinalysis? Let's break it down first into infants eight weeks or younger, and then we'll talk about toddlers eight weeks to two years, and then we'll talk about kids older than two years. So we'll start with the infants. How do you decide on their pretest probability? Yeah, so essentially all infants under eight weeks of age with a true fever need to have urinary tract testing to rule out a urinary tract infection. So just to clarify that, all kids with a fever, regardless of what other symptoms they have. So if they come in with a runny nose and cough, if they're eight weeks old or less and they have a true fever, they need a urinalysis. That's correct. Essentially, we could do a whole other podcast around young infant fever because it's a very, very complex discussion where there's lots of different literature and multiple conflicting studies around this. But essentially, eight weeks and under with a fever, they have a high, much higher risk of a serious bacterial infection, including the infections that we worry about from birth. So it's important that all children under eight weeks of age have, at a minimum, a urine test completed. Again, with these children, they often have very nonspecific symptoms with their fever. So it's not classic where you can say this is a 100% of viral infection, and that is part of the reason that we need to do testing. So one is that the symptoms are often nonspecific when they have fever, a true fever at this age, as well as they have a much higher risk of a serious bacterial infection. So I just want to clarify this a little bit further. So let's say you have a kid with an obvious cellulitis who's febrile who's seven weeks old. Are you going to do a urinalysis on that child? So if there's a clear, clear focus in infection, which again is much less common in this age population, then no, you don't necessarily need to do a urine testing. But for the majority of children, and what we're talking about really is children between four and eight weeks of age, their symptoms are very nonspecific and urine testing needs to be done. Under 28 days of age, all children should have a urine test completed. Got it. Okay. So that's under eight weeks old. That actually makes it nice and simple. So under eight weeks old, unless they have an incredibly obvious source of infection, and that does not include a URI, they should all get urinalysis done. That's all right. correct. 
Now let's talk about the between eight weeks and two years old. They come in with a fever. Let's say they have a runny nose and a bit of a cough as well. How do you risk stratify those patients? That's a great question. This is where it gets much more complicated. So I think the important thing is, is that you risk stratify. You look at their pretest probability. Current practice, there's such huge practice variation, and that's why we overall are doing so poorly. A lot of clinicians don't risk stratify and don't look at the pretest probability. And that's what I hope is one of the key takeaway points from today. So you could look at the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guidelines that were published in 2011, and they break it down based on risk factors for females as well as for males in this age range between 2 and 24 months to determine what is the risk of having a urinary tract infection. And for females, this includes white race, age less than 12 months, temperature greater than or equal to 100.2 Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius, and absence of another source of infection, which I think is very key. So if a child comes in with very classic URTI symptoms, cold, runny nose, sneezing, rhinorrhea, cough, a urinary tract infection is is much less likely. But sometimes it's not always clear-cut. A lot of parents come in and say, well, my child's had a congestion for the last four months. They're in daycare. So it's hard to sometimes say with their new fever, does it have anything to do with their current congestion or not? And so that's why it's important to take a look at their risk factors. For males, the probability of UTI is most influenced, again, by their circumcision status. Uncircumcised male infants and toddlers under 24 months of age, the risk of UTI exceeds 1% without any additional risk factors if they have a fever. So it's really important to take a look at their risk factors. So for boys in this age range, risk factors include non-black race, temperature greater than or equal to 39 degrees Celsius, fever persisting for more than 24 hours, and again, that absence of another source of infection. Those are some of the ways to come up with a pretest probability for boys and for girls and some of the key risk factors that include their age, their temperature, their race, and uh, if they have a fever of unknown source. I understand that there's uh, something relatively new called UTI Calc out of Pittsburgh that is kind of a decision tool to help us with this risk stratification. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought this up. So UTI Calc is a validated calculator that helps estimate the pretest probability of urinary tract infection in young febrile children, again, in the same age range of 2 to 24 months, as well as it helps estimate the post-test probability based on urine testing that is done, so urine dipstick or urine analysis. And this was a study that was published recently out of Pittsburgh. And it's readily available online with any search engine to use the UTI calculator. So what the clinical risk factors that they have used at the UTI calculator include age less than 24 months, temperature greater than or equal to 39 degrees Celsius or 102.2 Fahrenheit, non-black race, female or uncircumcised male, again, we hear that again, and no other fever source. Using the online calculator UTI Calc, you can readily answer these five questions, which will help determine the pretest probability of having a urinary tract infection, whether it's greater than or less than 2%, and whether testing is recommended or not. Wow, so this is great. This simplifies a lot. So we were talking about the eight weeks under, fever, no totally obvious source. They all need a urine. Between 
eight weeks and two years, we've got the UTI calc. And you can just go to MD calc. It's on there and calculate this. I think that's really kind of the age group where I agree the practice variation is all over the place. So this really helps. Just for the EBM keeners out there, what's the kind of hardcore evidence that this UTI calc actually works? When they compared it with the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatric Algorithm, they reduced the need for urine testing by 8%. And the same time, they decreased the number of urinary tract infections that were missed by three cases. So it's very interesting to look at this validated calculator that was compared with the AAP algorithm that is more widely used and, and known. I think it's important to recognize that the UTI calc has been retrospectively validated, and that was the study that Olivia was alluding to earlier, but it hasn't yet been validated prospectively to my knowledge. So that's something to look out for in the future. All right. So suffice to say that UTI calc is probably the best tool that we have to date. It's not perfect. It still needs prospective validation, but hopefully that'll be coming down the pipe soon. Are they adapting it at SickKids? So it's very interesting that you asked that. We're actually adopting, uh, looking at doing this as part of a QI study where we're really revamping of all the work that we do around urine testing when it comes from who that we test to how do we test as well as to how we make an empiric diagnosis and when do we decide to do empiric treatment versus sending a culture and waiting and following up only in starting treatment if the culture is in fact positive. So yes, we're looking to adopt that. What I think is important to take away is that is as long as you're using evidence-based tool that helps determine your pretest probability, you still have to look at the patient in front of you. At the end of the day, that's what's always going to matter. But if you're using a, evidence to guide your pretest probability of whether I should test this child or not, and convince yourself that using the evidence I do not need to test this child, or using the evidence that I do need to test the child, that is what is important. And I think if we, as all clinicians, are doing that in our care and how we see febrile children this age range, which we can dramatically improve the number that we're seeing of and reduce the number of false positive urinary tract infections. So the bottom line with UTI calc is that when there are no more than one of these features, and the features are age less than 12 months, maximum temp greater than 39 degrees Celsius or 102.2 Fahrenheit, self-described as black, female or uncircumcised male, and other fever source, if there's no more than one of these features, the risk of UTI is less than 1%. So we've talked about less than eight weeks. Do we urine on all kids with fever, unless there's an extremely obvious source, which there rarely is. Between two months and two years, we're recommending using UTI calc in addition to your physician gestalt. And over two years, we haven't talked about that yet. So we know in over two years that kids are more likely, once they're toilet trained, to present with the more typical symptoms. So it's not quite as much of a dilemma. How do you risk stratify those kids more than two years old? So again, it goes to having the classic symptoms. So if they don't have any symptoms that would be urinary symptoms, so around urinary frequency, dysuria, other symptoms that would make you worry about a urinary tract infection, then you would treat them just like a teenager or an adult patient where you don't need to do urinary testing. 
But I do think it's important to recognize there are some pitfalls. So recognizing that males, generally the age three above, three or higher, so once they are uh, toilet trained, it is very, very unusual for them to develop a urinary tract infection unless they have had some type of instrumentation. So again, the risk with males as they get older is, is much, much, much less once we get out of that sort of gray zone where it's much more difficult to test at that two to 24 age range. Another common presenting symptom that we see in males is balanitis. So they can come in with some urinary symptoms, but it tends to be very, very localized to the genitals. And that's why your physical exam is still of, of tremendous value. And a lot of them do not have urinary tract infections, but they just have balanitis that requires a different form of treatment. Now, when a child has balanitis, they do warrant urinary testing, but that doesn't mean that they have a urinary tract infection. A pitfall for girls is that girls can often have nonspecific vulvovaginitis, so often sort of an irritant vulvovaginitis that they can get for many different reasons. A common example is if girls are using bubble baths. That can cause uh, some breakdown, some irritation in the vaginal mucosa, and that can lead to a vaginitis. That is not a urinary tract infection and very different, and you will often pick this up by doing a physical exam. Great. Some beautiful pitfalls there. So to reiterate that, the pitfall in boys is that over the age of three, it's extraordinarily rare for them to present with a first-time UTI unless they've had some sort of instrumentation. And also just be wary that prepubertal girls can develop dysuria and a red vulva from poor hygiene or exposure to bubble bath or other irritants. In those kids, the urine cultures will be sterile, but this problem is often inappropriately diagnosed and treated as a UTI. So now that we've talked about risk stratification, the next topic will be how to test for these kids. But before we do that, I think it's important to discuss asymptomatic bacteria. Dr. Science, what is the prevalence of asymptomatic bacteria? Okay, so asymptomatic bacteria, as you probably are aware, is the presence of bacteria in a significant amount without associated signs or symptoms of a urinary tract infection. And the prevalence really varies by a number of factors, including age, sex, and the presence of underlying genital urinary abnormalities. So for example, health for healthy women, the prevalence increases from about 1% at school age to over 20% among healthy women over the age of 80. So there's quite a bit of variability. So estimates in the literature suggest that for children, it's estimated to be less than 1% in full-term infants, 3% in school-age children, and about 1% in older children. Okay. So this is very different than the elderly nursing home patient who almost seems to me like half of them or even more will have dirty urines no matter what they present with. Exactly. And we know from the adult literature that we shouldn't be treating asymptomatic bacteria in any adult except maybe pregnant patients, which actually might be changing soon, the recommendations on that even. Okay, so first, good to know that children's prevalence of asymptomatic bacteria is actually quite a lot less. So it's not like every kid who you do a urine on has a dirty urine. So that's good to know. So I think what's important to recognize, while asymptomatic bacteria is less common in children, what is more common in children is contamination. And so when we see a positive urine culture in an asymptomatic child, 
our first thought should be, is this a contaminated culture? And that often has to do with what we're going to talk about soon as to how we test children, how we obtain a urine sample. Because it was very easy to obtain a urine sample, we wouldn't have some of these controversies that we currently do. So again, in children who have a positive urine culture, it's often important to think about, is this a contamination or is this a true UTI? All right. So knowing that about contamination and about asymptomatic bacteria, Dr. Science, if an immunocompetent, otherwise healthy child comes in with a fever of unknown source for, say, 24 hours, and we do test the urine, and we find a few white cells in his urine and, let's say, positive nitrites, so a presumed UTI, but not definitive because you haven't got cultures back yet, is treating that child promptly with antibiotics going to prevent sepsis? It's a really good question. So the risk of sepsis is very low, but it depends on the age of the patient. So the risk of an untreated UTI progressing to sepsis is higher in infants than compared to older children. Uh, So in a sepsis study from 2003, a U.S. group reviewed pediatric admissions from seven states in 1995, and they reported on over 9,500 cases of severe sepsis. And for those with severe sepsis, only about 4% had a genital urinary source identified. And it was also noted that the mortality was lower in that group compared to the overall cohort. So it was 4% versus 10%. Now, When you review the study, you'll see that a large number of cases where the sources were unknown, but the organisms weren't commonly those associated with UTI. So it's likely that that's a reasonable estimate of the number of patients with UTI that have sepsis. The same author published an update including data from 1995, 2000, and 2005, and they report an increasing prevalence of sepsis, but this was largely attributed to sepsis in newborns and actually the proportion of UTIs contributing to sepsis decreased over those years. So I guess the bottom line is the risk of sepsis is low, but it really depends on the age of the patient. All right. So in infants, we should be thinking about the possibility of sepsis for kids with UTI. For older kids, though, it really is extraordinarily rare to develop sepsis in an otherwise immunocompetent kid who comes in with a fever for less than 24 hours. The incidence of sepsis in those kids is extraordinarily rare. Exactly. Okay. So the next question when it comes to the value of treating kids with UTI is, will treating an otherwise healthy kid with fever for 24 hours for UTI prevent renal scarring and hypertension when they get older? So we've talked about, yes, infants will have a significant but very small incidence of sepsis. Older kids, extraordinarily rare. The other question that always comes up is, Will treating UTI in kids prevent hypertension, renal scarring, chronic renal failure, et cetera? Yeah, so this is a good question, and the answer is quite controversial. And I want to preface this by saying I'm not a nephrologist or a urologist, but I'll give you my take on the situation. Uh, So the AAP guidelines from 2011-2016 suggest that delays in appropriate treatment could increase the risk of renal damage. And that's based on a couple of studies that are cited that are from sort of 1983 and 1994. But there have been many other studies since then that report rates of 
of renal scarring post-UTI in the range of 15 to 60 percent. And delayed initiation of therapy is often reported as a risk factor. But these studies have really varied in age, gender, diagnostic criteria for UTI, comorbid urologic abnormalities. And there's also a new recognition that underlying renal abnormalities may be the cause of renal scarring that was previously attributed to infection. So the literature is quite confusing. There was a study in 2008 by Hewitt that compared acute DMSA scans at the time of UTI diagnosis to scans done one after, and they did not find a difference in renal scarring one year later between those that got antibiotics early and those that got antibiotics later. But two recent studies in 2017 and 2016 found that a delay in treatment was associated with an increased risk of renal scarring. And they report that a delay of 48 hours or more increased the odds of new renal scarring by 47%. So based on these two studies, some suggest that early and aggressive antibiotic therapy within 72 hours is necessary to prevent renal damage. Okay, so that's renal scarring. I mean, that's not really a patient-oriented outcome. So... You know, renal scarring is something we see on imaging, but uh, how does that translate to actual renal failure or hypertension or anything that would be considered significant to affect the patient? So again, unfortunately, this literature is controversial as well. In discussion with one of my colleagues who's a urologist, he's emphasized that you need significant usually bilateral damage in order to lead to hypertension and renal failure. And many of these patients have pre-existing renal abnormalities or inherent dysplasia due to maldevelopment embryologically. So it's difficult to translate a lot of the literature out that's out there to otherwise healthy children. So just like with many other studies in, in pediatrics, these studies are flawed and it's really hard to interpret what to do and where to go. And I think that there's a lot of further research in this area that is still needed. Okay, so suffice to say that there's no good evidence out there that treating a UTI in a child will prevent hypertension, chronic renal failure. There's conflicting studies whether it causes scarring. We know that you need to have some anatomical predisposition and bilateral scarring to really cause chronic renal failure and hypertension. So there's no exact answer that we have yet, but suffice to say, would you agree that there's no good evidence that treating UTIs will prevent these chronic problems? Exactly. I think that the bottom line is the evidence has looked at renal scarring. And as you say, I think there are some more recent studies that suggest that delaying treatment may increase the risk of renal scarring, but how that translates to more chronic problems like renal failure and hypertension is, has not been well studied. And I think it's really important that we continue to emphasize through this talk that we are talking about the otherwise healthy child without underlying anatomic abnormalities. This is a patient population that through this entire conversation that we are referring to, we are not referring to a child who has an underlying urologic abnormality. That's a very different conversation to be had. Yeah, just to throw another curveball in there, the child who presents at three months with, with a fever and you decide to do a urine on and you decide to treat for a UTI, you don't know whether that child has an underlying urologic abnormality maybe the UTI is the first sign that they do have an underlying urologic abnormality. So that even makes it a little bit more complicated. You're absolutely right. 
So now that we've confused our listeners a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So knowing that UTI rarely results in sepsis and hasn't been proven to lead to hypertension or chronic renal failure later in life, is there a role for the watchful waiting approach like we do or should be doing for, say, kids with otitis media? or the hemodynamically stable nursing home patient with delirium NYD and a dirty urine. We had discussed the watch and wait approach in our adult UTI myths and misconception podcasts. So is there a role for watchful waiting in kids who present with fever, say immunocompetent kid, fever less than 24 hours, can't find a source, but they look fine? Is there a role for watchful waiting instead of doing a urine on on all those kids? Absolutely, for sure. I want to be clear, this is not the same as otitis media and watchful waiting, where we know a large proportion of vaccinated children with otitis media are actually due to a viral etiology and will prove on their own. Children with a true UTI will not improve on their own without appropriate antimicrobial treatment. And I think that's a really important take-home point and why we are searching for the answer. We are searching for the answer because we want to reduce symptoms. The parent comes in with a child who has a fever. They want to know why their child can't go to school, can't go to daycare. The parent has to lose time from work because their child is homesick. Their child might not be eating or drinking as well. So we really want to get at providing the right care to the right patient at the right time. And so looking at how can we reduce their symptoms is going to be starting antimicrobial treatment for a child who has a true urinary tract infection. And delayed treatment, or by not treating or missing this diagnosis, you could potentially develop more of pyelonephritis-type symptoms, so upper tract symptoms where you're vomiting, you're not drinking well, which can lead to dehydration, requiring the need for intravenous fluid rehydration, for hospitalization, and even intravenous antibiotics that all potentially could have been prevented if we caught the urinary tract infection early on and started appropriate treatment. So what I think is important as a takeaway point is that there are children that are higher risk for UTI where it may be appropriate to start empiric treatment while the culture is pending, as well as there's children that are low risk for urinary tract infection where, one, you either decide you don't need to treat, but you know that they have good follow-up, the parents are reliable, they'll come back if the child is worse. Those are all important factors as emergency medicine physicians that we need to keep in mind because we don't have a pre-established relationship with this patient. We don't always know what their follow-up is going to be. It might be a weekend. It might be in the middle of the night. So those are all factors that we need to look into account. But fortunately, now we can look at post-test probabilities with our urine testing to help guide us to say, is this a child that looks well, that we can send a culture, we think it's unlikely they have a urinary tract infection, and we'll call the family the next day if the culture turns positive? Or is this a child that has is symptomatic, who has a positive urine dipstick or a positive urinalysis that is likely to indicate a urinary tract infection, and therefore we're going to start empiric treatment and call the family if, in fact, the urine culture is negative to stop the treatment. So we have a pretty good idea now of who to investigate for UTI. We've talked about the immunocompetent child without any known urologic abnormalities, the eight-week and under group, the between eight weeks and two months and above two months. There's one other group that there's been a few studies and one recently done on that is quite complicated, I find, and confusing, and that's kids with bronchiolitis who present with fever. 
I've read a couple of studies that conclude that we should be checking the urines of infants with febrile bronchiolitis because about 3% of them will be positive. But to me, it seems that the fever is far more likely to be related to the bronchiolitis, and they're suggesting we should give antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It doesn't really make much sense to me. I understand that in JAMA Pediatrics, they just published a meta-analysis on this topic in January of this year that shed a bit of light on this topic. So, Dr. Science, what's your take on the literature on febrile bronchiolitis and the prevalence of positive urine cultures in, in that particular population? Yeah, that's a great question. So let's start again by saying the less than two months with a fever, I think we all agree at this stage, the evidence suggests that we should be doing a urine culture in that age group. And so a lot of that comes from this study by Levine in 2004, which was a three-year multi-center prospective cross-sectional study. And it was looking at infants less than 60 days who presented with fever and looking at their rates of serious bacterial infection. And when they compared infants with RSV and infants with RSV and their rates of urinary tract infection, the rate was 5.4% in patients who are RSV positive and 10% in patients who are RSV negative. So although the risk of urinary tract infection was significantly lower in RSV positive children, it was still at a rate that was concerning, so 5% of those patients. You mentioned the systematic review. So there is an older systematic review that suggested the prevalence was around 3.3%. The problem with that systematic review is that it included studies with various definitions of what a UTI was, as well as they didn't include the urinalysis in the results. So a lot of the studies with positive urine cultures may have been including asymptomatic bacteria or contamination in their outcome. So the recent systematic review you mentioned in JAMA Pediatrics actually is trying to look at the incidence of urinary tract infection taking into account a urinalysis result. And by including the urinalysis result in the outcome, they're hoping to exclude some of those studies that had contamination in the outcome. And based on that study, they estimate the rate to be around 0.8% of a positive urine, of a urinary tract infection in patients with bronchiolitis. Unfortunately, again, there were still variations in the definitions used, as well as variable urinalysis. So just to summarize, the exact incidence is unclear. Infants less than two months, we agree, should have a urine culture done or should be evaluated for a UTI. But over two months of age, it comes down to the risk stratification that Olivia has talked about in detail already. Okay, so whether or not they have bronchiolitis, the same rules apply. I think a simple way of approaching this is just to actually ignore all this bronchiolitis stuff and just approach every kid the same way, right? Because if they're less than two months, you're going to do a urine. If they're between two months and two years, whether they have bronchiolitis or not, you're going to go through the risk stratification and decide whether or not to test them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you had a patient with bronchiolitis, but they also had all of the, they had a very high fever, they were, you know, they met the other criteria on the UTI calculator, you would go ahead and investigate that child for a UTI as well. If they were low risk based on the UTI calculator, you would not. 
Yeah, so both the UTI calculator and the AAP algorithms use one risk factor to consider as the absence of another source of infection. So if you, that is one risk factor that they would not have if you have a true source of infection, you thought the child had bronchiolitis. But again, you need to look at the other factors of the child. Most commonly, kids with bronchiolitis, particularly if it's RSV bronchiolitis, tend to have low-grade fevers. You don't really see those high fevers of 39 and higher. And again, that's another risk factor that's incorporated into both of those algorithms to think about. All right. So, so far in the podcast, we've discussed presentation by age. We've discussed the likelihood of ratios and risk stratification. We've discussed using UTI calc and who to test. Next up is how to test. So, Dr. Ostro, how do you obtain a urine sample from a child who is not toilet trained? Is a bag urine okay? I've heard that there's the uh, quick wee method for a clean catch urine. I've heard that it works pretty well that there is one where you hold the baby up by the armpits and massage their back or something like that. So the question is, how do you obtain a urine sample from a child who isn't toilet trained? It's a great question. It's going really to depend on your work environment, your practice environment. What is the skill level for testing? Is there a comfort with doing urinary catheterization? What are the time requirements? How ill is a child? So there's multiple factors to take into account. The AAP guidelines give you two options. So they say that option one is to obtain a urine specimen through catheterization or suprapubic aspiration for culture and urine analysis. Or option two is to obtain a urine specimen through the most convenient means and to perform a urinalysis. If the urinalysis results suggest a UTI, then obtaining a urinary specimen through catheterization or suprapubic aspiration is required for the culture. And the reason being is that we well know that urine bags have a high rate of contamination, generally over 50%. And so we would never want to send a urine bag for culture. But one would argue, and I would agree, that doing a catheterization and particularly a suprapubic aspiration, which is not very commonly done in North America, is a very invasive test to do, particularly if the child likely has a low risk for a urinary tract infection. And so I think it's important to think about what are some of the other options. And as you've mentioned, there's been some interesting studies that have been published recently sharing some of the other options in addition to a urine bag, which I think most of us are most familiar with placing and using a urine bag for testing. The problem with the urine bag is that they often break, they often fall off. You have to test the urine shortly after the child has voided into the bag. The longer the urine sits in the bag, the more likely it is to have a false positive. Additionally, you have to wait. So if you're in a busy emergency room where you're very focused on flow, you have to wait for the child to void into the bag. So there's been some newer publications that, as you mentioned, that have looked at other ways to obtain a clean catch sample in a, a young child. So there's the quick wee method that uses gentle suprapubic cutaneous stimulation using gauze soaked in cold fluid. So it's the cold fluid they think is part of the key and using uh, circular mov movements in the suprapubic area. And in a recent random control study, they found that using this method was a faster way to obtain a clean catch urine specimen for infants from 1 to 12 months of age in the emergency department. So that's one option of ways to obtain a urine. And then as you mentioned, there's the other study that looked at when you're holding up the baby, I, I call it bladder tapping. I don't believe that the technique has a formal name to it. That was really, it was published out of Madrid and looked at neonates. So again, only under one month of age as another technique 
this to obtain a clean catch specimen. This technique is a little more complicated in that it involves two providers, which often you don't have the luxury of having, where one, you hold up the infant under the armpits and you feed the baby 25 minutes prior to doing the the technique, I should say. 25 minutes later, you hold up the baby under the armpits. You tap on the bladder, so tap on the suprapubic area, and then you do gentle massage on the paraspinal lumbar muscles and repeat this movement back and forth and tell the infant voids. And they had success rates in under 60 seconds with voiding with this method. Okay, so just to clarify there, the quick wee method, are you using that with a bag? No. So the quick wee method is a way just to obtain a clean catch urine. So with both the quick wee and the bladder tapping, you would clean the genitals as well as possible prior to doing the testing. And then you would catch the void, the clean catch void. So the provider, as they're doing the circular motion in the quick wee method, they would be able to catch the urine with a urine cup uh, as a child avoids. Great. Okay. So we'll see if we can get some videos up on the show notes for the quick wee method. And this other method that we should call, what are we going to call it? We at Kids tend to refer to it as the bladder tapping technique. The bladder tapping technique. Okay, got it. Just to review there what you said. So a bag urine is acceptable as an initial screening test to get a urinalysis, but it is unacceptable to get a culture from a bag. So when the urinalysis is positive from, and we'll talk about what positive actually means in a second, on a urine bag, you then need to go ahead and do a a more invasive testing like a catheter. But hopefully in most of these kids, we can avoid using a bag altogether by getting a clean catch either by the quick wee method or by the bladder tap method. I think it's important to recognize that both of the quick wee and the bladder tapping especially are on young infants, so under one uh, year of age. So often I would say they're not mobile, they're not walking. So these techniques would certainly potentially we don't have evidence to support them in a 12 to 24 month age timeframe. That doesn't mean that you can't try them, but we don't know if they would be successful or not. One thing I want to highlight is actually a quality improvement study that was published in Pediatrics in 2016 that was done out of CHOP that looks at incorporating urine bags into screening in a busy emergency room, similar to the environment that we have in sick kids. And what they found is they did a two-step non-invasive approach, and the goal was to reduce their overall catheterization rates of, of young children aged 6 to 24 months. That was previously quite high. And what they were able to do was that the urine bags were applied again, for children aged 6 to 24 months, who met predefined screening criteria on arrival into the emergency room to be seen by a clinician. They were not placed in triage, again, because of the issues of a bag is left on too long without testing that can lead to false positives. But once a child was placed into the emergency room, they placed a urine bag on if they met the predefined criteria in this age range. And they would check the urine bag every 30 minutes to see if the child had voided. And by doing so, they were able to cut their urinary catheterization rates in half without impacting ED length of stay. And so this is, we're actually looking to replicate um, this work at SickKids. Currently, we catheterize most children that need urinary testing in this age range. And so we're hoping with this two-step approach that we will be able to adopt much less invasive techniques without impacting our ED length of stay. So we've talked about some of the methods of how to get the urine. Then the question is, how do you test the urine? And in particular, is the dipstick an acceptable screen for UTI. I know that at North York General, where I work, they've actually banned dipsticks from the emergency department 
But I understand that at SickKids, they actually use dipsticks in the emergency department. Is a urine dipstick an acceptable screening test for UTI, or do we need to send all these urines to the lab for microscopy? So this is another very important point and why we're in this predicament, why we're having this conversation today is because a urine dipstick as of now, current point of care urine dipsticks are not great tests for diagnosing urinary tract infections are not very specific for UTIs. So I think it really depends on your clinical environment. We do use point of care urine dipsticks with automated reads of the urine dipstick results to help us diagnose urinary tract infections. But other centers, as you mentioned, North York in a lot of places in the United States do send for formal urinalysis. I think it also depends on how that's going to impact your workflow, what turnaround times there are as well. Fortunately, because we know that it's not a great test, there have been algorithms that have been developed at CHOP, at the AAP section of emergency medicine also recently released an algorithm that looks at different components of the urine dipstick to help determine your post-test probability of a UTI to determine if it is likely or not. And we've also done that work at SickKids and have developed our own algorithm that breaks down the different components of the urine dipstick results to help determine, again, that probability of having a urinary tract infection. So that segues very nicely into urinalysis interpretation. So Dr. Ostrow, how accurate is the urinalysis in infants? And how about older children? What do you look for on urinalysis to convince yourself that you can make a presumptive diagnosis of UTI while waiting for cultures? So I think it's important to recognize that in young infants, they do not have the ability to concentrate their urine. And so we still will always send a culture in this population particularly because it's important to recognize that even a normal urine dip might still have a positive culture, particularly in non-E. coli bacteria. So in that young age range, that's really important to recognize. And so that's why, particularly in that quality improvement study that I just talked about, the lower age limit was six months when they enrolled in using the urine bag as a screening test. And that has to do with the reason why. But Key takeaway points, I think it's important to remember, is that nitrates are very, very specific for urinary tract infection. Now, not all bacteria make nitrates. You're not always going to see them. But if you do, you're kind of, you can stop thinking for a minute. And that gives you your answer that this is likely a urinary tract infection and empiric treatment should be warranted. What becomes more problematic is when we're looking at leukocyte esterase. This is, while sensitive, is not very specific for a urinary tract infection. And so some of the different algorithms that have been developed, like the one we use at SickKids, looks at the degree of leukocyte esterase. So if we're looking at 1 plus versus 2 plus versus 3 plus, in other words, small, moderate, or large, the degree of leukocyte esterase to help guide whether or not you need empiric treatment. Again, we're still going to send a culture, and it's important that if you are going to send a culture, that those results are in fact followed up on, so that if you do send a child home with a diagnosis of urinary tract infection and they do not in fact have one, that we notify the parents so that they can not only stop antibiotics, but also know that their child in fact did not have a urinary tract infection. And we'll talk more about those implications, I'm sure, a bit later. So I think you can be guided by the urine dipstick, but remember the gold standard is going to be the culture. All right. I understand that there was a big study in 2018 by the PCARN group that looked into the accuracy of urinalysis for UTIs in febrile infants 60 days and younger. 
What did that study show? It was very helpful to support the urinalysis as a tool for testing, screening for urinary tract infections. And in this study, they found for children that had urine cultures with greater than 50,000 colony-forming units, the sensitivity and specificity were well above 90% with the urinalysis in these young children. All right. So infants, the urinalysis is actually quite accurate, which is very different than in adults at least accurate for determining whether the cartridge will be positive or not. Correct. Abnormal urinalysis can be very helpful and in, in are highly sensitive and specific for urinary tract infections in this population when they looked at under 60 days of age. Okay. And again, positive nitrites are highly specific and negative leukocyte esterase is quite sensitive. So those are really the two things that are quite helpful in interpreting that initial urinalysis to then decide whether you're going to treat the kid empirically or not. Yes. And I think there's the one caveat that if a child has just voided recently, sort of within an hour and you're doing a urinalysis, it may not have the leukocyte esterase or the nitrite there yet. So that's just something to keep in mind. So before we move on to antimicrobial choices for presumed UTI, let's summarize everything we've talked about so far into an algorithm that we'll have posted in the show notes. First, for kids with fever less than eight weeks old, unless they have a very obvious source of infection, which they rarely do, they should all get a urinalysis and culture by cath, ideally, or by clean catch with the quick wee or bladder tap method, definitely not a bag urine. So these kids, again, under eight weeks, they all need urinalysis and culture. Between two and 24 months, risk stratify your kid with UTI calc, and we'll have a link on the show notes. And remember, some of the things are a high temp, a fever for more than 24 hours, et cetera. And if they have one or two or none of the factors in UTI calc, you can watch and wait. You don't need any testing. If they're ill-appearing, then they need a urinalysis and culture by cath. If they're not ill-appearing but have three or more risk factors, get a urinalysis by quick wee method or bag if that fails. If the urinalysis is clean, you're done. If your urine dipstick is positive for nitrites, then you need to go on to get a cath urine for culture. And if your microscopy has more than five white blood cells per high-powered field, you also need to go on to get a cath urine for culture. We'll have a nice diagram in the show notes that'll review all of this stuff. Keep in mind, as you mentioned, ill-appearing child, we are not talking about that today. So they go out the window and they need to have a urine by the fastest means possible, which is generally a catheterization under 24 months of age. Also keeping in mind that the AAP guidelines are for age 2 to 24 months. So under 2, we really should be obtaining catheterizations. I recognize that some areas might not be able to do that initially. And so, yes, you could use the bladder tapping or the quick wee as a, as a method to at least screen. But if that is positive or you're going to be starting empiric antimicrobials, it is important that you get a catheterized sample for urine testing and culture. Let's move on to blood tests in the setting of presumed UTI. And in particular, if they're useful in distinguishing simple cystitis from pyelonephritis. So Dr. Science, is there any role for ESR, CRP, or procalcitonin in distinguishing 
lower UTI, cystitis from upper UTI, pyelonephritis in kids in the emergency department? It's a good question because they're all indicators of acute inflammation. So you would think that with pyelonephritis, they may be elevated versus not in a urinary tract infection. And there have been a number of studies looking at this, seeing if there's an association. But unfortunately, they haven't been able to reliably differentiate between children with cystitis and children with pyelonephritis. In 2015, there was a meta-analysis of studies evaluating the accuracy of just those measures, so procalcitonin, CRP, and ESR, and they were looking at whether or not they predict DMSA-positive pyelonephritis in children with culture-confirmed UTI. And essentially, the sensitivities ranged from 86 to 95 percent, and specificity was from 38 to 71 percent, so quite a degree of variability. And when you look at the specific measures. So ESR did not appear to be accurate. A low CRP, so less than 20, may be somewhat useful to rule out pyelonephritis, but there was a lot of heterogeneity in the trials. No definitive recommendation could be made. And then procalcitonin may be better to rule in pyelonephritis, but again, there wasn't enough compelling evidence to make a practice recommendation regarding that. Okay. I do understand, though, that there's this validated tool called the step-by-step approach to risk stratifying febrile infants that does include a CRP and a procalcitonin, and that if the answer is no to a bunch of questions, then the infant is considered low risk for pylo. And the questions are, are they ill-appearing or have an abnormal pediatric assessment triangle? Are they three weeks old or less? Do they have white blood cells in their urine? Is their procalcitonin 0.5 or greater? Is their CRP greater than 20 or ANC greater than 10,000? So that's the step-by-step approach. Dr. Osto, do you think this step-by-step approach is useful clinically? Would you recommend it in the ED? I think a standardized approach to managing a well-appearing infant under 60 days without a source of fever is very important, just like it's important to have a standardized approach to diagnosing and treating urinary tract infections in children. So step-by-step is a newer approach that incorporates two biomarkers, procalcitonin and CRP, in their decision role to determine infants that are low risk for urinary tract infection. So I do think biomarkers have greatly impacted practice in this area of well-appearing young infants and fevers without a source to the point where there's much less value in a white blood cell count and much more value in these acute phase reactants. So it depends on your organization and what you have available to you. So at SickKids, we do not have procalcitonin available to us, so we do not use that. But my understanding is there is another center in Canada that does have procalcitonin available. So it depends on what the availability, what the turnaround time of this test is going to be, particularly in emergency medicine, to impact care. We do use a CRP, so we use a modified algorithm for well-appearing young infants with fever without a source. And we incorporate the CRP with a cutoff of 20 And we also uh, use an age range under 28 days, so we don't go down to 21 days as a step-by-step approach. So there's a whole other conversation that you could have around this topic and whole and how that you manage well-appearing young infants with fever. The literature has changed over the years. There's a lot of conflicting studies, and it's a very interesting topic. But again, I think the important takeaway point is having a standardized approach. And when you don't have a source, so your urine testing, your urine dipstick or urine analysis is normal, these inflammatory markers, so having a reassuring CRP or procalcitonin can be very valuable 
role in risk stratifying these young infants. So suffice to say that while there's no single blood test that can help rule in or rule out or really risk stratify properly an infant with fever, it's not unreasonable to send a procalcitonin if you have it or a CRP if you're using this validated tool called the step-by-step approach. So the step-by-step approach or another validated tool to help risk stratify young infants with fever with no source is incredibly valuable to an emergency practitioner. Once you have a positive source, you're no longer following the step-by-step approach or another algorithm. So if your urine dipstick or urine analysis is positive, you have a source and you are going to treat the young infant under 60 days appropriately as a diagnosis of pyelonephritis and generally hospital admission with intravenous antibiotics. But if your urine dipstick and your analysis is normal, again, it can using the procalcitonin and or CRP, depending on what you have available, to you can help you risk stratify your child, the infant to being low or high risk for a serious bacterial infection, which can have tremendous implications, particularly in that often gray zone between four to eight weeks of age when you're determining, do you need to do a lumbar puncture? Do you need to do empiric intravenous antibiotics and hospital admission? Or is this a child who can safely go home with no treatment in a 12 to 24 hour follow-up next day? All right. So suffice to say that the step-by-step approach is great for patients who have a negative urine when you need to further restratify them. That's correct. Okay, let's move on to treatment. So in the adult literature, there's pretty compelling evidence that oral and IV antibiotics have equivalent efficacy in non-septic patients with cellulitis, with pneumonia, even for osteomyelitis and febrile neutropenia. Dr. Science, first, how do oral and IV antibiotics compare for the treatment of pediatric UTI? So one of my ID mentors always says the bacteria don't know how the antibiotics get into the bloodstream. They just see the antibiotics. And so if you don't need urgent antibiotics in the bloodstream and you're confident that the patient can take and absorb the oral form and it has good penetration into the organ system of interest, then there's no reason to think that IV would be better than oral. And this is supported in the UTI literature in children. There was a Cochrane review that compared 10 to 14 days of oral antibiotics to studies that used IV antibiotics for three days and then oral antibiotics for 10 days. And they didn't find a difference with respect to duration of fever, persistence of UTI at three days, or persistent kidney damage at six to 12 months. So based on that study and the literature that's out there, the AAP recommendations or guidelines suggest that for children over two months of age, well-appearing infants can start on oral therapy. So there's no clear benefit for giving IV upfront. There was also a recent study that was published in pediatrics around a topic that is uh, a particular interest of mine around ED return visits that looked at children aged 29 days to two years of age with a diagnosis of urinary tract infection in the ED. And they found no difference in the return visits, 72-hour return visits requiring hospitalization in children that received one dose of IV antibiotics prior to discharge versus those children that were just discharged on oral antibiotics. So I think that's another important point is that starting with intravenous doesn't make you better, faster, or prevent complications that require you to return to the ED. 
Okay. So unless the kid's really sick or they're vomiting constantly, really PO antibiotics are as good as IV antibiotics for pediatric UTI. Dr. Science, how about the duration of oral antibiotics? In adults, lower UTI is treated effectively with as little as three days of antibiotics. Is it the same for kids? So guidelines agree that there should be a minimum of seven days of treatment for an upper urinary tract infection and a minimum duration of two to three days for lower urinary tract infection. But the distinction between upper and lower urinary tract infection can be challenging, especially in younger infants. So generally, the shorter courses are reserved for much older children who clearly have isolated lower symptoms. Interestingly, there is currently an NIH-funded RCT that's comparing five versus 10 days of antibiotics. So there may be more information coming sooner that can allow us to shorten the duration. But for now, the minimum recommendation is seven days. Okay. So for the little kitties, we're still giving seven days. For the older kids that are pretty close to adult age, who have an obvious localized lower urinary tract infection, cystitis, they probably only need three days. All right. And Dr. Science, for the child who's admitted to your service, what are the inpatient IV antibiotic choices that we should be thinking about? Like, let's say in the ED, we have a kid who's really sick with a UTI and we feel that we should be starting IV antibiotics or if they're vomiting and we need IV antibiotics. What are the IV antibiotics of choice for pediatric UTI? So before I tell you what we do at SickKids, it's just important to remember that the antibiotic choice at your institution should really depend on the antibiogram in the area. So what we use at SickKids may not be appropriate in other countries. But our approach, so for infants less than two to three months of age, they're generally admitted with a rule-out sepsis and get ampicillin and an aminoglycoside or a third-generation cephalosporin, so either cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, depending on their age. And then the majority of older children end up on either ampicillin and aminoglycoside or a third-generation cephalosporin. Okay, great. Yeah, not too complicated. And what about for the kids who are well enough to go home from the ED? What are the best outpatient antibiotic PO choices? So you always want to start narrow spectrum. And as Michelle said, you want to look at your local antibiograms for local susceptibility patterns to guide your decision-making around empiric treatment, recognizing that you're always going to follow up the culture and sensitivity to ensure that it is sensitive. So I've worked in different areas of North America, and so how my first-line treatment has varied depending on where I'm working. And so you want to use your local antibiogram, which for us at SickKids ends up being cephalaxin or amoxicillin clavulonic acid. One caveat to this is that if a child has had a previous urinary tract infection, then I would always suggest looking at the previous culture and susceptibility patterning to guide your empiric treatment. So if they have previous cultures that show resistance, then that would not be appropriate to start them on a, say, for instance, cephalexin if they've had a previous culture that did show resistance. All right. So that's a little bit about antimicrobial choices. Let's move on to imaging. I understand that the latest AAP guidelines no longer recommend VCUG after a single UTI, but they do recommend ultrasound based on level C evidence. However, my understanding is that very few, if any of these kids with a UTI who go on to have an ultrasound will have a change in their management. So Dr. Science, which kids with UTI should we be imaging in the emergency department? So in the emergency department, I think there would be very few circumstances where imaging would be required acutely during the first 24 to 48 hours of illness. So both the AAP and CPS, so the 
American Academy of Pediatric and the Canadian Pediatric Society are now recommending an ultrasound, as you said, for children less than two years and not recommending avoiding cystic But those are testing that don't need to be done necessarily acutely in the emergency department. All right. So that's nice and simple. It's going to be the extremely rare kid that we're going to even think about doing imaging in the emergency department with a UTI. We'll leave that up to the inpatient team. Exactly. So acute imaging is generally only uh, required for patients that are going to require admission, and those can be done by the inpatient team. It's often the child that's not getting better, has underlying anomalies or other risk factors that make imaging necessary on the inpatient setting. Great. Nice and simple. Let's move on from imaging then to disposition. I think it's pretty agreed upon that all kids under 28 days of age with a fever should be admitted, but it's a bit more controversial once we hit the second month of life and after that. So Dr. Ostro, which kids older than one month of age with UTIs need to be admitted and which kids can go home on oral antibiotics? You're absolutely right. This is an area that is still evolving, and I think we will continue to evolve in time. I remember when I was in my training years ago, we admitted every child under 12 months of age with a urinary tract infection and fever for intravenous antibiotic. Thankfully, we don't need to do that anymore, and there's really great evidence, particularly above the age of two months, that an otherwise well-appearing child with a urinary tract infection who's tolerating oral fluids and have stable vital signs and look well, that they could be discharged home on oral antimicrobials. So the admission criteria are generally for infants younger than two months of age who have a positive UTI, we would generally recommend admitting them. There might be changes in that in the future in that sort of that what we would call that gray zone of four to eight weeks in a well-appearing child. But for right now, it's generally recommended that all children under 68 days of age with a urinary tract infection are admitted for at least initial empiric intravenous antimicrobial therapy. More common reasons for hospitalization would be a child who's just not tolerating oral fluids, who's dehydrated who can't take their antibiotics and need to receive intravenous antibiotics. Obviously, if there's any signs of a urinary obstruction or significant underlying disease, that would increase your threshold for needing admission. Or if the child is toxic or septic or unwell appearing, those children obviously would be admitted as well too. All right. So if there's going to be a magic number there, it's two months. Well appearing, older than two months, not vomiting, most of those patients will be able to go home on oral antibiotics. And when it comes to disposition, those kids that you are sending home, we talked about how it's going to be the extremely rare kid who needs imaging in the emergency department. What about sending home kids and then ordering imaging as an outpatient. Is there much of a role for that, or should we, again, just leave that up to whoever we're referring them to in the community? Generally, I would recommend that that is followed up by their primary care physician who will ultimately be following up the results and determining if any further workup or management like a referral or other testing is needed. But sometimes as an advocate for a child and explain to a parent the implications of having a urinary tract infection, I think it's important that we remind them. And often what I do is in my discharge summaries that I provide to families, I recommend that they follow up with their doctor to have an outpatient ultrasound ordered. So the American Academy of Pediatrics 
pediatric guidelines as well as the Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines both do recommend that children less than two years of age should still be investigated with a renal bladder ultrasound after their first febrile urinary tract infection to identify any significant renal abnormalities. So you're absolutely right. We no longer need to uh, recommend the VCUG as well, even though it is recognized that this is level C evidence and based on a lot of observational studies that they at least do obtain an outpatient ultrasound. So how we practice is, again, we want to engage the primary care physician who's going to be coordinating the care, but I do recommend to the family, see your doctor, you should ideally have a renal bladder ultrasound done within two weeks of having this urinary tract infection. And in fact, having it sooner might increase your risk of having a false positive ultrasound. So that's why you don't really want to order a test in the emergency room or the next day to have that ultrasound done because with an acute infection, you increase your risk of having a false positive ultrasound. It will also give the opportunity for the urine culture results to be back, which is the gold standard. So then you'll know definitively if this was a urinary tract infection or not and image appropriately with that. All right. I can just anticipate some of the emails I'm going to get, though, about recommending to the primary care physician to ultrasound all these kids with first-time UTIs. Because my understanding is that there's actually no good evidence that imaging will decrease the rates of sepsis, hypertension, or chronic renal failure. We were talking earlier about whether it's the extremely rare kid with a UTI who will develop sepsis and that there's really no good evidence for the development of hypertension and chronic renal failure after UTI. So that brings up the question then, you know, do these kids really need to be imaged? So while the guidelines may suggest that we still should be imaging, I think it's something that some of us may actually want to have a shared decision-making conversation with parents that while the guidelines say ultrasound should be done, that there's really not great evidence that they're going to change outcomes. You're absolutely right. The evidence is not strong here. But we have made tremendous headway in the sense that we used to always recommend that all children receive both a ultrasound and VCUG. And a VCUG is definitely an invasive test to be performed. And I'm glad that we are no longer there. The evidence, while not good, of obtaining a renal ultrasound, you do have the opportunity to pick up an underlying renal anomaly, an underlying severe vesiculoureteral reflux that could potentially impact your future management of this child, which could potentially have long-term implications if this child does have an underlying anomaly, as we mentioned, could lead to more chronic implications for this child. So we always want to have that conversation absolutely with shared decision-making, and I hope that the evidence will evolve and we'll have a better understanding of who really truly does need this ultrasound to be performed especially as we've made advances in prenatal ultrasounds, where a lot of prenatal ultrasounds will pick up these anomalies prenatally. I think we could see a shift in the evidence. If you've had a prenatal ultrasound or certain factors of that prenatal ultrasound, we could change the management at least after the first UTI, and maybe this will eventually shift. But I do think it's an important conversation to have, particularly in a young child, particularly under 12 months of age, where you need to weigh the risk benefits. And I think the risk of having an ultrasound is relatively low. Okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. You know, some would argue that any test you do carries some risk because of false positives and all the subsequent testing and maybe antibiotics that these children get placed on based on an ultrasound result. Some of the kids who get an ultrasound who show something 
positive there will then go on to a VCUG and then get radiation. So I'm not sure that an ultrasound is totally risk-free, although the test itself doesn't impart radiation. I think there is some risk associated with getting an ultrasound. I think Michelle brought up a great point that would certainly help is that first, let's get the urine culture. Let's, in fact, ensure that this is a true UTI. And as we've talked about, we know that a lot are, in fact, not. And that can help reduce the need for unnecessary testing. And then I think that it's, as an emergency physician, we often are not the ones who are going to be following this patient long term. And so I think that's an important conversation that the child have with their general practitioner, who also is weighing the evidence and having these conversations with the parents. Fair enough. So when it comes to whether these children need ultrasounds or not, I don't want to go against the guidelines. But the problem with ultrasound is that the reason it's being recommended is to identify any significant renal abnormalities. So, for example, the renal anomalies or VUR, vesicoureteral reflux. In speaking with some of my urology colleagues, my understanding is that most significant renal anomalies are often picked up on prenatal ultrasounds. And an abdominal ultrasound is not a very sensitive test to pick up VUR. So that raises the question of whether the ultrasound is a good enough test to pick up VUR. But doing a VCUG is also an invasive test, which is more sensitive to pick up VUR. But even if you find VUR, it's questionable what needs to be done about that. So I really think this is an evolving area and it requires more research and there will be more to come on that and the utility of both ultrasounds and VCUG post-first febrile UTI. Okay, so suffice to say that there's really no role for ultrasound in the emergency department for pretty much all of these kids. In terms of getting a follow-up ultrasound for first-time UTIs in these little kitties, while the guidelines do still recommend getting an ultrasound, it's very controversial. There's really no great evidence that doing an ultrasound will improve patient-oriented outcomes, and there is a real possibility that the ultrasound might lead to further testing that may actually cause harm. Let's talk a little bit about the future direction of pediatric UTI diagnosis and management. Dr. Science, what do you think the future holds in the next, say, five or 10 years in terms of research in pediatric UTI diagnosis and management? I think a lot of future directions will focus on improved diagnostics in urinary tract infections and more rapid diagnostic tests that are more sensitive and specific to diagnose urinary tract infections so that we don't have to have so many algorithms where we're risk stratifying and trying to determine who we should treat empirically, who we should not. It would be great to have a test that would allow us to know definitively in a shorter period of time. Wouldn't that be great? It would, for sure. I definitely think in the pipeline there's going to be improved diagnostics and particularly point-of-care diagnostic testing that we can have rapid results in the emergency room to help guide our care, as well as um, rapid identification methods with culture so that we no longer need to wait those 24-hour periods. A lot of labs are starting to adopt those, so we might have a prelim result within four hours. That can also really impact and guide care and the need to start empiric treatment or not. 
I think there's a lot of opportunity with technology and decision support that is well underutilized, and we're just starting to make headway in Canada with the adoption of electronic health records. But as we talked about, there's all these algorithms that currently we need to put into our memory and somewhere store, and when we're seeing the child in front of us with fever at this age, decide when to apply. We need to reduce the cognitive load on physicians by arming us with technology that can help us. And so technology that tells you that this is a child that, yes, you should screen, this is a child based on the point of care the urinalysis, whatever method you're going to use, has a high likelihood versus a low likelihood of UTI. This is a child, when you diagnose with a UTI, this is the antibiotic that is recommended. So there's a lot of opportunities to use decision support and technology, and, and I would even argue eventually, hopefully, with artificial intelligence and big data to help guide us so that we can reduce the cognitive load that we currently have on clinicians to really try to provide the best evidence. I think we can make tremendous headway, as I mentioned early on, that right now we are performing quite poorly around a diagnosis that we see every day. So yes, this isn't rocket science. This isn't earth-shattering emergency medicine. It's not going to make all of our heart rates go up when we see these patients, but yet we are seeing these patients every single day in our emergency room, these children, and we are currently not providing high-quality care by using these guidelines and evidence, and we have a lot of opportunity for improvement. As I mentioned, we have almost 50% of the children we are falsely diagnosing with a urinary tract infection. I don't think the goal should be to reduce that to zero, but if we can get that number down to 10 15% by using the strategies that we've discussed today, we've made tremendous headroads. And this isn't just to help the child at the time of the emergency care visit. It's really important with every other, when we think about empiric testing and treatment, what harms, what implications does that have for the child? So they're receiving antimicrobials potentially that they don't need. They can have adverse reactions from those antimicrobials. They can develop antimicrobial resistance by being exposed to antibiotics that they don't need. If they're diagnosed with a urinary tract infection, they might end up getting that ultrasound. They might end up getting that V so being exposed to future testing that they don't even need, parents' absentees from work, children's absentees from school or daycare because they're having to have these testing done, can also lead to a cycle, as we mentioned, recurring testing. Every time the child, therefore, has a fever in the future, they're going to get urine testing if they were labeled with having a prior urinary tract infection. So it has tremendous implications. So I think it's really important that we take this opportunity to see how can we do better for our patients. I think I'm going to have to skip my outro because you said it better than I could possibly say it. Thank you so much, Dr. Science and Dr. Ostro, for your uh, insights into the complicated world of pediatric UTI. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.